Bitcoin, once a name associated with cyber geeks and black markets, the world's first cryptocurrency is emerging as a major force in the financial world. So what is it? And more importantly, what could it mean for you? On this special edition of Hold the Line, we delve into the world of cryptocurrency. Welcome to Hold the Line, I'm Buck Sexton. With its spectacular rise in value and growing mainstream acceptance, 2021 may be the year of Bitcoin, the world's first digital currency that has captured the imagination of retail investors and titans of the financial world alike. What started as a project to create a more streamlined way to pay for goods and services online has turned into a digital asset with a market cap topping $1 trillion. While widespread media coverage of Bitcoin is a fairly recent phenomenon, the cryptocurrency is actually over a decade old. It was developed and launched in 2009 by someone named Satoshi Nakamoto. Not much is known about the mysterious developer or if he even exists. Although many people have claimed to be Nakamoto over the years, the name is likely to be a pseudonym. So what is Bitcoin? Well, according to a white paper published in 2009, Bitcoin is a, quote, purely peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash that would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. In other words, Bitcoin is a system of currency that seeks to cut out the middlemen that currently dominate systems of exchange. In the case of the United States, those middlemen are commercial banks and the Federal Reserve. For example, when someone makes an online purchase under the current system, the digital dollar goes from the buyer to the buyer's bank, to the Federal Reserve, to the seller's bank, and finally to the seller. With Bitcoin, the exchange is far more efficient. It goes directly from buyer to seller, cutting out the banks and the fees that they collect. It's a revolutionary idea that before cryptocurrency had no means of implementation. But you might ask, who keeps track of how much money you have in your account if there's no bank? Well, that's the truly revolutionary aspect of Bitcoin. With Bitcoin, your digital currency is kept secure on a digital ledger called the blockchain, where every exchange is logged. No single bank or institution runs the blockchain. Instead, the information is decentralized, stored electronically on millions of computers around the world. In a global financial world dominated by commercial and central banks, you can start to see why this innovation might start making some people very nervous. Bitcoin has the potential to put a lot of very important people out of a job. But Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are not without their skeptics. While some financial experts and economists have hailed the arrival of crypto as the dawn of a new age, others claim that it's little more than a speculative bubble with no underlying value. Here in the U.S., members of Congress are calling for stricter oversight over the crypto market, with some going so far as to call for an outright ban. So who's right? Is Bitcoin the future or is it a passing fad? Is it a store of value or an investment? Perhaps a very risky one. We've got an incredible group of guests lined up to help us delve deeper into the Bitcoin question. Coming up, author, entrepreneur, and early Bitcoin adopter James Altucher joins us to explain the ins and outs of cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is digital 
many. The good thing about Bitcoin is that it's decentralized, which means you don't need to bake. They will only be 21 million ever in the whole world. Bitcoin! So simple, a three-year-old can explain it, right? We just saw that there. Well, maybe not. Despite the fact that they've been the focus of a considerable, a considerable amount of news lately, most people still have no idea what cryptocurrencies are, what Bitcoin are, or Bitcoin is. Is it money? Is it digital gold? And what gives it its value? Perhaps most importantly, how can I get my hands on some? For more on the ins and outs of cryptocurrency, let's bring an author, entrepreneur, and early cryptocurrency adopter, James Altucher. James, good to see you. Buck, always great to be on your show. How, how are things? Good to things, see you. Things are all right, man. It's a good time if you were an early uh, crypto investor, at least in Bitcoin. In layman's terms, what, what, let's start before we drill more into Bitcoin specifically. What's a cryptocurrency? A cryptocurrency usually means a coin, uh, you know, it's basically a software package that can be used as currency. You could you could trade it, but it has special features. It, it's very private. It's decentralized, meaning I could send a coin straight to your wallet without going through an intermediary like a bank. Right now, if I wanted to send you money, I have to go to my bank. I have to give them all of your information. It goes up to the local reserve bank, and then it goes to the Federal Reserve, then it goes down to your local reserve bank, then to your bank. There's fees all along the way. There's potential for human error all along the way. There's there's potential for invasion of privacy all along the way. That the government and all the banks know every single money transaction you do. Bitcoin is just straight from my wallet into your wallet. Like without getting all technical, that's the the basics. Tell me about the the, the origin. Decentralized. Tell, tell me about the origins of it a little bit. How did this thing come together? Tell me about Satoshi. What's going on? Yeah, so the, the basic idea is that there was a project called, everybody wanted a replacement for gold. So gold has outlived its use. I mean, originally, let's say, I'm simplifying, but let's say people bartered to, to exchange goods, but that wasn't good enough. Then they used, they, they needed a way to create money so that exchanging was standardized. It wasn't like I traded a pair of shoes for a bag of rice because what if I didn't have a pair of shoes? But gold, everybody agreed, or copper or silver, everybody agreed if they could make money with metal several thousand years ago, and they could do their trading through through metal. So gold and silver were the, the popular metals. And then, of course, there was currency like dollars, and that was backed by gold. But then now money is just paper. And, you know, if you take out a dollar bill and look at it, it has all these symbols like in God we trust, you know, there's a pyramid with an eye on it. There's George Washington. And they're hoping that there's something on this piece of paper that you trust enough that you're willing to believe this has a dollar of value or $100 in value or whatever the, coin, the, the note is. The problem with paper money is that, you know, well, in addition to what I said before about privacy and fees and, and you know, being too centralized, there's also this big problem that you don't know how much money exists right now. They print. They could print. Be printing money every single day, and that weakens the value of the money in your pocket. Value is a function of supply and demand. Too much supply, the value goes down. So, so right in the past year, because of uh, the stimulus packages and so on, an extra twenty trillion dollars of money 
was printed on the planet. The other thing about Bitcoin that is very interesting is that there can only be a maximum of 21 Bitcoin. There's there's no printing of money. 20, yeah, 21 million Bitcoins. So there's no you can't you can't exceed 21 million Bitcoins. And but demand is going up. So we have the reverse equation. We have a supply that is completely fixed forever and demand. I can give you 10 reasons why demand has been going up lately. And you see the results of that. The price has gone a year ago today. The price of Bitcoin was around 4000 and now it's 56000. And so people say, have I missed the run? No. One thing we know about Bitcoin is it's not it, it's not going to stay at this number. It's either going way up for reasons I can explain or it's going to zero. But the higher Bitcoin is, it means the more people are putting their moving their cash, their paper money into Bitcoin. The higher it is, actually, the more potential it has for going up because many large institutions now are putting billions and billions of dollars into Bitcoin today. Right. The total value of all the Bitcoins exceeded a trillion dollars for the first time. So tell me, tell me this. What is blockchain for the folks at home? Why, why do they need to know about blockchain technology as it is an integral part of Bitcoin and, and crypto? Right. So blockchain is simply a list. It's a list of every single transaction that has ever occurred on Bitcoin. And it's anonymous. It's not like James gave... Buck Sexton, you know, a million dollars for whatever reason. It's all anonymous and private, but this way it guarantees that every transaction, there is no forgery, every transaction is real. You could actually use blockchain and Bitcoin to make escrow contracts and wills. And it, blockchain is really useful as an application to replace basic, uh, the basic functions of a lawyer. And people don't really think about Bitcoin in that way. And I actually don't think it's that important to understand blockchain. Just understand that Bitcoin is slowly replacing the role that gold used to have in the, U the United States. If people did not trust the currency because they felt the Federal Reserve was printing too much money, they would buy gold as a hedge to be safe. But gold, what you, there's not a single thing in this country you can buy with gold. At the end of the day, gold is just a rock. And Bitcoin has real functionality. It's very useful for me to be able to send money to you directly without going through all the banks, without going through the government, without paying extra fees, knowing for sure that when I send that money, you'll get it because of the way blockchain is stored. It's stored with cryptography. It's all this technical stuff. But because of the how solid the blockchain is, I know I sent you uh, currency. You know that currency, that Bitcoin is on the way to you. It's, there's no check is in the mail thing. It happens instantly. So, so uh, Bitcoin has a lot of advantages over gold, which is useless, and it has a lot of advantages over paper money because not controlled by any government, not controlled by any bank, and it, there's no forgery, and supply is capped. Right now, again, the Federal Reserve, for all we know, is printing up another trillion dollars for the next stimulus package, and that means every dollar you own has less value because you're not in charge of the supply right. of money. S supply and demand, Bitcoin, supply and demand still counts, even when the federal government says it doesn't. But explain to me, there are, I think now a few hundred cryptocurrencies out there. Why is Bitcoin worth more than, I mean, Dogecoin was one that got some headlines recently because Elon Musk tweeted about it. H how is one cryptocurrency worth more than another cryptocurrency? 
Well, that's a great question. So Dogecoin was actually made as a joke. I don't think people realize that the guy just wanted to show how easy it is to make a crypto, their own cryptocurrency. It actually has no functionality and no use. So Dogecoin is not a coin people should buy. The, the, the founder of it will admit it's just a joke. But every, you know, just like there's more, just like every country has a different currency. So, you know, England has pounds, Europe has euros, uh, the continent has euros, uh, US has US dollars, Japan has yen. There are alternative cryptocurrencies, but their borders are not geographic. Their borders uh, are pro what I call problem borders. So there's uh, one kind of currency, a cryptocurrency called Zcash, which is even more private than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is known for its privacy. Zcash has even more privacy. The way they set up their blockchain, you can't see every transaction, but you know every transaction is confirmed. Um, there's a coin, Filecoin, which is like a decentralized Dropbox. It, it, the file, all the Filecoins store data. You can upload your files to fi the Filecoin infrastructure. Okay, so, so there's a lot of there's a lot of coins out there. You're telling me Bitcoin so far is the best with the most use, and if people are interested in crypto, that's where they should start. Fair to say, yeah. James. I think we got to leave it there for now. We we got to have you. We got to do a whole series on on crypto with Mr. James Altucher. Yeah. You should all, you should... I would just say Bitcoin is the only one people should be concerned about. That's the one where if it even just replaces gold, which it looks like it's going to do, the price of Bitcoin would be over $400,000. And that doesn't even count if it starts replacing any percentage at all of the world's currency. So we're all just right. beginning on the, on the Bitcoin run. James Altucher, always good to see you, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, Buck. Talk to you soon. As major companies and financial institutions add Bitcoin to their balance sheets, it's becoming increasingly clear that a cryptocurrency could have major impact on financial markets. We'll have more with founder and president of Penn Financial Group, Matt McCall, when we come back. In its early days, Bitcoin was a bit of an oddity. It was a novelty with the tech geeks. How times have changed. Today, the digital currency appears on the verge of mainstream adoption, garnering interest from some of the biggest names in the financial world. Just weeks ago, Bank of New York Mellon, the nation's oldest bank, announced that it will hold, transfer, and issue Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies on behalf of its clients. More recently, the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock, they've got about $8.7 trillion in assets, announced that it too would begin to dabble in Bitcoin. So what does the mainstream adoption mean for the future of America's financial system? For more, let me bring in my guest, founder and president of Penn Financial Group, Matt McCall. Matt, great to see you. Great to be here, Buck. So, uh, Matt, I, I know from the early days of, of Bitcoin, there were people who were mining it themselves, and it seemed like a tech nerd geek thing. And now we're at roughly $50,000 a coin and you've got some of the biggest financial institutions in the world who are saying, yeah, there's something to this. Uh, what do you see happening here? What, what is going on with these major financial players? Well, you know, they're a little late to the game because what Bitcoin is doing is it's disrupting their business dramatically. Um, you know, it's really decentralizing the financial industry. And, it, you know, this is an industry that you mentioned, uh, Bank of New York, Mellon, uh, BlackRock. 
Some of these firms have been around so long that they have had basically, uh, they could do whatever they want in this industry and they were just making money hand over fist. They are the epitome of the middleman, taking a couple pennies here and there and fleecing the public. Well, the great thing about cryptocurrencies and the great thing about Bitcoin is it eliminates the middleman. No more big banks taking their fees, charging you money. You're, you don't know where your wire is sitting at. Everything's simultaneously. Everything's efficient. Everything's cheap. And I got to tell you, they're just getting on board now, Buck. So that tells you we're in a first inning of a very long nine inning game. How much is the federal government's money printing affecting the movement of Bitcoin right now, too? We could show everybody at home a chart of, of dollars in circulation. As we know, it's a lot of it's you know, digitized dollars on a screen, but how much money is, is out there, U.S. dollar obligations, uh, digital or otherwise? And it's gone up a whole lot and going to keep going up. Has the, the printing spree of the Federal Reserve been a, a big part of the Bitcoin move, or is it, is it more fundamental than that? No, it's been a huge part of that. That's a great point. And it's probably tough to see in that chart you're showing because it is a long-term chart. But on that right-hand side, you see a little bit of a spike. That is within the last year. And percentage-wise, the amount of money that's come online is insane. Not only is that the, the, the U.S. dollars in circulation, the amount of money in checking accounts right now, highest ever. Amount of money in saving accounts right now, highest ever. So with all this money being printed, it's very simple economics. If there's more supply and demand remains stagnant, that means the value will drop. So those dollars either in your pocket, uh, in your bank account, in your backyard, wherever you keep them, they're losing value by the second. Every tick that goes off the clock, you are losing money. And that is why you saw Tesla, uh, MicroStrategy, some of these large corporations putting their cash into Bitcoin because they realize sitting in cash it's a losing investment where Bitcoin is going to go up because it's a limited supply. 89% of all Bitcoin has already been mined. That means supply is basically already out there and demand goes up. There's only one thing that can happen, Buck. Prices go higher. Matt, I know you're not a Bitcoin skeptic, but can you just for, for everybody watching make the case or tell us what the case is for the, the, in some cases, pretty extreme skepticism of, about Bitcoin. I think uh, one of the big hedge fund guys a while back said it was, you know, air in a can. And, and people have been saying this for a while. There's all these different cryptocurrencies out there. Explain to us the skeptics case against Bitcoin. And then, of course, you can tell us why you think that that doesn't add up. Well, most skeptics uh, just don't understand it. And I can't get into the to, to everything about Bitcoin because I'll confuse everybody out there. It could take hours. But the reason people are typically skeptical about anything in life is because somebody hasn't explained it to them correctly or it is something that's new and it's a change. We all hate change. Bitcoin fundamentally, all it really is, is it's a, it's a, it's a unit to transfer things back and forth. Uh, the uh, blockchain, everybody's heard of blockchain, right? Everybody knows that that's a huge technology, trillions of dollars. Well, Bitcoin's built on the blockchain. So you'll see Bitcoin get rid of middlemen. Instead of when you're buying a house right now, it takes you thousands of papers and hundreds of hours and all this money. It'll be done with a click of a button. So it's eliminating jobs. It's eliminating the middleman. It's eliminating so many people that have been fleecing the public for so long. So I wouldn't even go as far as maybe they're skeptics, Buck. They may know in the back of their mind they're scared to death that Bitcoin's going to change the world. And the other big thing is, 
If you're a bit skeptic of anything, what about the Federal Reserve? They control the value of a dollar. They can print whatever they want. They can stop printing. They can buy bonds. Issue. I mean, the things that go on behind the scenes, this cannot be manipulated. And that scares the hell out of governments. And when governments get scared, they tend to act in, in uh, ways that don't necessarily have good outcomes, Matt. Uh, when you're bringing all this up about what is a decentralized currency and, and the problems we see with the fiat currency, and fiat currency over the long term, historically, if people take a real macro view of it, does not end well. What is the U.S. government, and, and there are obviously many other governments that are, that are grappling with this as well right now, what do you think their approach will become when they're looking at Bitcoin? I mean, is this just going to be, they're going to regulate it, but how and what? And is this, a, a, a do they view this as a threat in some way? Yeah, I, I, they definitely view it as a threat. I mean, they, they are reeling right now. I don't think any government out there, any government regulation knows how they're going to end up regulating this at, at the end of the day. Uh, you know, a lot of countries have talked about doing their own digital currency. That's great. But the thing is, at the end of the day, it's still pegged to something where Bitcoin is simple supply and demand. So that, that may you know, get people to be OK for a bit. But at the, at the end of the day, this will upend any central bank. They will not exist anymore. Because why do we have to use a piece of paper? Because the government tells us to. Why? Why can't we use this pen right here to use this as currency? Nobody's telling you what to do. Bitcoin is something that's run by the people for the people. We've seen how the world's changed in the last 10 years, and it's only going that way. So governments, to me, they will overregulate the hell out of this. But all that does, Buck, is it makes the case for Bitcoin even stronger to long term. So it's actually they're hurting themselves by doing that. Taking it back to the, these big institutions, uh, the you know, big banks and, and asset managers that are buying Bitcoin, Matt, are they viewing it as a as a store of, of value or just an investment like they'd invest in a stock? I mean, what what is their play? Why are they getting in the Bitcoin game? What are they hoping to accomplish with that over the long term? I think it's twofold. I think one, if they don't get into the game, their clients are going to start asking them why they aren't in it, because, you know, why am I going to this large financial institution? I'm giving you my tens of millions of dollars to manage, but you ignore something that's going up so much. So one is just they're, they're sheep. You know, all, most guys on Wall Street are sheep. They just follow each other. So they're just starting to follow the herd now. So I think that's number one. Number two, I think the smarter guys on Wall Street do see the potential of how this will upend things. And if you are going to be late to the game and some of these big money managers still to this day, you mentioned about still believe this is just smoke and mirrors. The longer they wait, the better chance that they will not be in business in a couple of years, because if you're not on this revolution of digital currencies, you will go by the wayside. It's going to be the same thing. How many people said, you know what, that Ford guy, he's a nut. These horses are the best things ever. They're going to run forever. That business is out. And same thing's going to happen to these, to these bankers, and I hope some of them do. Matt McCall, everybody. Matt, my friend, good to see you. Thanks again. My pleasure, Buck. Thanks. As the big financial institutions make their move into Bitcoin, the digital currency is likely to come under closer scrutiny from the U.S. government. Up next, we'll discuss the role that Capitol Hill has to play in cryptocurrency with Congressman Tom Emmer of Minnesota. Cryptocurrencies are a crock. What social benefit do they provide? 
Well, they allow a few dozen men in my district to sit in their pajamas on the couch all day and tell their wives they're going to be millionaires. Apparently not everyone's a fan of cryptocurrency. That was Democratic Congressman Brad Sherman back in 2018. Would have been a really good time to buy some Bitcoin, by the way. During a hearing of the House Financial Services Committee, Sherman has called on Congress to outlaw crypto, claiming it represents a threat to U.S. power. He's not entirely wrong. Americans' influence abroad is drawn in part from the fact the U.S. dollar powers global finance. For example, it's what allows us to enforce sanctions against rogue states like Iran and North Korea. So how's America supposed to balance its need to maintain global financial control with the need to adopt and foster a potentially game-changing innovation here? Minnesota Congressman Tom Emmer is a member of the House Committee on Financial Services and a co-chair of the Congressional Blockchain Caucus. He joins us now. Congressman, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Buck. First off, what does the, Congre- what does the uh, Blockchain Caucus do? Explain this one to us. Uh, raise awareness. So the uh, blockchain, it, it, for those of your, uh, I'm going to assume, Buck, that your viewers are very uh, aware of what cryptocurrency is and the difference between, for instance, Bitcoin and blockchain. But believe it or not, not too long ago, maybe three, four, maybe five years ago, there are members of Congress who quite frankly didn't know the difference between blockchain technology and a cryptocurrency such as Bitcoin. So uh, the Blockchain Caucus was created uh, originally, uh, Mick Mulvaney, one of the uh, original uh, founding members, uh, Dave Schweikert out of uh, Arizona, uh, Greg Pullis out of Colorado, and today Darren Soto out of Florida and Tom Emmer out of uh, Minnesota are the co-chairs. So Congressman, just in general, what kind of reaction does cryptocurrency and Bitcoin tend to get from your colleagues on Capitol Hill? Uh, that's evolving, Buck. Uh, again, if you would talk the same uh, time frame, I read a book about five years ago called The Age of Cryptocurrency. And after I finished the book, my legislative director told me that uh, you're probably one of the two or three most knowledgeable people in Congress on the topic of cryptocurrencies, which uh, frankly amazed me. Uh, What's happened over the last three, four years is a gradual evolution in understanding by members of Congress, uh, which uh, really has to move much quicker to catch up with the uh, with the public when it comes to what's going on. The uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, as you know, you played that clip from Brad Sherman, who's not a fan. He's not willing to uh, to catch up and get with the times. Uh, we need to understand that this is uh, nothing more than Americans and others innovating uh, when it comes to uh, peer-to-peer exchanges for value. You know, for those of us who have a uh, libertarian core, this uh, this really plays to uh, what we believe is the strength of uh, our freedom, which is the ability to self-determine, the ability to uh, to create things and then exchange value with others uh, without government interference. And uh, boy. This both celebrates the individual and it celebrates innovation in the financial services uh, uh, realm, Buck, in a way that uh, I I think a lot of us are very hopeful for bringing in the unbanked and the underbanked. I mean, think about uh, uh, women in some cultures that aren't given the right to be financially independent. Guess what? Uh, Cryptocurrency, the opportunity to, uh, to work in this area gives them uh, freedom and opportunity that they've never had before. So lots of big things are happening, but it's about bringing Congress uh, up to speed into the 21st century with where we're at. 
And Congressman, what kind of regulatory regime, if any, do you advocate Congress impose around crypto? I mean, what, what does adoption from a, a legal and government, uh, government framework look like? So, uh, look, it depends on how the cryptocurrency is being used. I mean, you call it cryptocurrency, but keep in mind, Buck, uh, our government needs to define, and perhaps it's the Treasury but uh, or it's Congress through legislation, needs to define what exactly is a commodity in this space, what exactly qualifies as a security uh, in this space, and what, in fact, is a currency. Uh, once you have those definitions established, Buck, then you have the regulatory framework in place, right? The uh, SEC will deal with uh, securities. The CFTC will deal with commodities. Uh, the Treasury will deal with, and the Fed will deal with uh, uh, ultimately uh, currency. So uh, it's how you define the use uh, that's that's so important right now. And look, I'm encouraging my colleagues to get up to speed quickly because the people that have uh, developed this space, uh, starting with uh, Satoshi, uh, who uh, you may know, I don't, uh, but uh, who launched uh, Bitcoin uh, back in the day, uh, they're moving very quickly. And these innovators, these creators, uh, if we don't figure this out here, they'll go somewhere else to figure it out. So uh, it's an exciting time. Uh, it should not be frowned on. It shouldn't be, uh, you know, unfortunately, the reputation in the beginning was anything that has cryptocurrency attached to it uh, is uh, related to uh, the story of Silk Road uh, and drug dealers. And that's not the case. Uh, look, uh, cash is still king. Uh, but cash can be moved uh, uh, in ways that uh, we still can't monitor, uh, much different than uh, uh, cryptocurrencies. And, and Congressman, I just want to ask you before we let you get back to legislating, what do you make of those who, who are out there saying that this is some kind of a, a threat to government power, that the government should be fearful of crypto? Good. Good, absolutely. I mean, Look, uh, government is not, we're not here to serve government. Government is here to serve us. Uh, and government needs to evolve as, uh, as the people evolve. And in this space, uh, you know, there's certainly no one would argue, well, some would, but I wouldn't argue that no regulation is appropriate. There should be some light touch regulation that allows for the innovation, for the creation of new opportunities, for people to get involved in the financial system for people to create new opportunities for themselves and others. And I think government has a tendency to stand in the way of that, especially when you're talking about new developments. You know, people like the old way. They're used to the old way of things being done. Well, guess what? That's not the way it's going to be in the future. And if government, our government doesn't catch up and figure out how to uh, operate in this space, guess what? These people are going to go do this elsewhere. So uh, I, I would say that right now is a great opportunity for us in Congress uh, to start working with the uh, the people that are developing cryptocurrencies for use as a currency, for use as a commodity, for use as a security, uh, to make sure that this uh, this is a great opportunity for everyone. Don't let government get in the way, is my message. Congressman, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it, sir. All right, Buck. All right. We've got more of our special here on cryptocurrency coming up. So we've looked at the big picture, cryptocurrency and the technology that powers it. 
clearly have the potential to revolutionize America's financial system. What does it all mean for you? Here to discuss the impact cryptocurrency could have on your wallet, host of the Stansberry Investor Hour, great podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can hear it. An editor of Extreme Value, Dan Ferris. Dan, thanks so much. You bet, bud. Great to be here. Good to see you again. Been a so, while. Yeah, man. It's good to see you. So tell me this. For a lot of folks out there that are looking at this are saying, okay, well, you know, Bitcoin, the price has gotten up to what? About roughly 50000 a coin as I'm talking to you. It's up. It's down day to day. But, you know, is, is this something that people should think of as a long-term investment that everyday folks can get involved in, too? I, I think the technology and parts of this have made people think that this just is only for more sophisticated investors or people good at technology. What do you make of that? Well, as far as that goes, I found establishing a, uh, an account to buy Bitcoin easier than opening an online brokerage account. I, it, it took minutes. It was very simple. And, you know, I used Coinbase. I don't, you know, work for Coinbase or anything. I'm not advertising there, but that just happens to be the one I use. A lot of people use it. But there are others as well. And if, if they're as easy to use as this, then that technology issue, that's, that's a non-problem. Um, so it should be easy to use. As far as a long-term investment, at this point, I have trouble calling Bitcoin an investment. Because when I think of investment, there needs to be a stream of cash flows associated with it. Even if you're buying shares of a company like Berkshire Hathaway, which does not pay a dividend, it's still an investment because you buy it for the cash that all the businesses create. Right? That's a long-term investment. Bitcoin, on the other hand, it's sort of like a... Um, it's a burgeoning store of value. You buy it to get a place in line. We're not sure what the ultimate utility of it will be. It doesn't trade like a currency or a store of value now. It trades like a biotech stock or something. It's just, it's highly volatile. So you can't look at the way it trades right now and say, yeah, that's, this is a safe asset. It's a long-term store of value. Yeah, um, Dan, could you speak a little more to that? Because people definitely... Sure. In, in you know common discourse, people that are just kind of sharing their opinions on this, you'll hear them, whether it's on TV or, you know, it feels like everybody these days thinks that they're an investor, which can be a sign of tough days to come. But anyway, you know, we talk about gold and silver as a store of value and that people can, can retreat into them when the economy or will retreat in some cases when the economy gets in trouble, right? Especially if they're worried about inflation, all the money printing that's going on. But you, you've heard this argument out there, I'm sure, well, maybe now Bitcoin will replace gold and silver as a store of value. You're, you're a long-term investor guy, kind of guy. I mean, that's, that's your thought process. What do you think about that? You can't say that right now. That's a purely speculative opinion. Bitcoin's history is 11 years right now. Just about 11 years exactly. And, and uh, the, the history of gold and silver is a tad longer. It's like Indeed. thousands. So, you know, by the by the Lindy effect, uh, you know, a 5000 year history suggests that there might be another several thousand years ahead. So, you know, all we know is that Bitcoin probably has another 11 years at least by that rationale. And we're not really it's a burgeoning store of value, perhaps. Maybe maybe it does become a real store of value and loses all this crazy volatility and becomes really stable in the future. At what price? You won't catch me trying to guess that. And for but the people, I'm for the, I'm so, sorry, Dennis, I say for, the, for the people at home that are, that are watching, uh, it, you know, is there going to be a point in your mind at which Bitcoin, and, and I know this is probably a pretty big prediction to ask anybody to make, but 
Are we going to be buying groceries with Bitcoin? I mean, is this going to be Elon Musk says that they're going to start at some point accepting Bitcoin for Tesla. So all of a sudden, everyone gets all excited about it. The, the price went up a, a bit as a result of that. But is this the kind of thing where people you think might be paying out of their Bitcoin wallet for everyday items the way they do for credit cards or, or other, you know, Venmo, these other financial technologies that are that are getting more and more broad utilization? I mean, is that is that feasible? Oh, it's definitely feasible. It's definitely feasible. But for me, the real issue is not it's not the technological one because Bitcoin is accepted all over the world in thousands of places now anyway. Uh, and when you have people like, um, you know, Bank of New York Mellon and uh, you know, PayPal getting involved and saying, OK, yeah, you can we're, we're, we accept Bitcoin. Um, that's meaningful. So what you really have to ask at this point, though, is what does that mean, Buck? What does it mean to buy groceries with Bitcoin? You're really just buying them with dollars, right? Because you're ultimately, you're still measuring it in dollars. Are we going to see prices on the shelf that says, you know, 0.23 Bitcoin or something like that? It would have to be really, really stable. Right now, if you printed that label, you'd get a new one five seconds later. So, you know, it's, it's whether or not Bitcoin is going to be a currency. You can buy things with it now, but what are you really doing? You're just transferring dollars into Bitcoin and Bitcoin back into dollars, and that's all there is to it. I've done transactions with Bitcoin, so I know that's exactly what we're doing. But for it to be a meaningful currency, like a dollar or even a euro or a yen, it's got to have a lot more stability to it. it just tell me, has you know, when, when people uh, look at this now, they often talk about, the, the blockchain technology and how that could affect, again, day-to-day -day life. So putting aside people that are more focused on this as an investor, we've been talking about a lot of things uh, like that here on the show, but for those who are just wondering how this is gonna change things ar around them, right? I mean, you know, the smartphone, whether, you, whether you're a smartphone person or not at adoption, that has been a revolution in technology that has changed the way people work and buy and shop and all, all, you know, all these different, communicate, everything, right? Is blockchain itself a technology that is essential to cryptocurrency, Bitcoin notably, but other cryptocurrencies as well? Is that going to be something that is used to tell you that you know the the grapefruit you're holding in your hand, you know, came through to uh, Topeka after stopping in Dallas on its way from Guatemala? I mean, is that actually going to happen? I think it will. I think it will. Um, when? is of course the question, but sure, the, the the use cases, I mean, we could sit here all day and say, oh, you could use it for this and this and this and this and this, but what, when that begins to happen is the real question, right? And and the, the bigger question is, does owning Bitcoin do anything for me there? Does it get me a place in line to some future utility yet unknown? That, for me, that's the question, because right now, Bitcoin is an oddity, actually, compared to other cryptocurrencies. They all come into existence, most of them, for some specific purpose, like to facilitate you know, contracts or something else. But Bitcoin is really a pure kind of currency. It's made as a currency, a store of value, and yet it's so volatile, it can't possibly be thought of that way yet. So I remember, we're, go ahead, we're go really ahead. Still, we're really still waiting to figure out exactly where Bitcoin fits in. In the early days of this, there were people who would always bring up the possibility of the government, our government, governments in general, 
deciding that they don't like this. But it seems like that has faded away. Is there still a, a concern that governments may decide that Bitcoin is a problem because it is decentralized? So they can decide that all they want, but it's designed with that in mind. I mean, it came into existence because of that problem, because we can't trust the government to manage the currency. You know, from 1913 when the Fed took over until now, uh, you know, they've done a fairly poor job by any reasonable measurement that you could apply. So um, the Bitcoin folks said, well, here's what we're going to do. There's never, ever going to be more than 21 million of these. And there aren't going to be 21 million of them until like the year 2140 or something. So we've got that inflation problem uh, taken care of. And you can subdivide this thing into millions. So, you know, you can pay for a loaf of bread with it or something, too. Dan, Dan where so, can people go to read more of your work on Bitcoin and everything else you do at the... Uh at, at your newsletter? Um, I talk about Bitcoin almost exclusively in the Stansberry Investor Hour podcast at InvestorHour.com. InvestorHour.com. Everyone go check it out. Dan, appreciate the expertise. You take care. I'll talk to you soon. You too. Talk to you soon, Buck. That's it for this special edition of Hold the Line. The No Spin News with Mr. Bill O'Reilly is up next. Shields high. 